back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. This is a podcast discussing the people, the places, and the topics of the North American fur trade. Today we're going to discuss the real-life rags-to-riches journey of John Jacob Astor and the American Fur Company. The man we'll meet in this episode was born Johann Jacob Astor on July 17, 1763, in Waldorf, Germany. He is the youngest son of six children. His father, also Johann Jacob Astor, was a butcher, and his mother was a woman named Maria Magdalena Vomberg. Despite working hard, the couple were extremely poor, and they struggled to feed their six children. Matters got even worse in 1766 when Maria suddenly died leaving Johann Sr. in a dire situation. He now had six kids to raise on his own, the youngest being Johann Jr., age only three. Johann Sr. soon met a woman at his church named Christina Siebold, and before long the two were married, and Christina moved into the modest little Astor home. Christina's first child was born the following spring. And then came another, and another, and the tiny house was soon full beyond capacity with twelve children running around. The eldest boys went to work in the butcher shop with their father, but as those boys neared the age of sixteen, they began to yearn for a life that didn't involve being up to your elbows in animal carcasses. So in 1775, the eldest son, Heinrich, signed on as a Hessian mercenary to fight for the British in the American Revolution. He was sent to America, where he restyled himself Henry Astor. But there were still eleven children in the small house. Johann Sr. and Christina were members of the Reformed Church, which had established a school for its parishioners. So Johann Jr. and his siblings were sent to a one-room school in Waldorf. Teachers there found Johann Jr. extremely motivated to learn and incredibly bright. The next year, Johann's older brother George left home. He moved to London, England, and started working for his uncle's company, named Astor and Broadway, making pianos and flutes and other instruments. That same year, Johann's older brother Melkor left home to work as a cook hundreds of miles away. This left Johann Jr. as the oldest son at home. That meant that his responsibilities in the family business increased considerably, forcing him to leave school after only a year and a half and work as a butcher full-time. Well, Johann Jr. was absolutely miserable. It took him some time to work up the nerve, but eventually Jr. convinced Johann Sr. that it was in both of their best interests for him to move to London. There he could make more money and send it back home. Well, Sr. agreed to this, and Johann Jr. packed up his meager belongings. But neither could afford the boat fare. So 17-year-old Johann Jr. walked 30 miles to a town called Spare on the Rhine River, and he worked as a raftsman until he had earned enough money to buy himself passage to London. Life in a busy metropolis like London suited Johann very well. He started learning English, and he anglicized his name to become John Jacob Astor. He had very little education, but still, he immediately began honing his business and sales skills. And he did this by watching. He observed trends, like the boom of textile demand due to the British wartime needs. 
he paid attention to the things that people were buying from the local London shops, and he took notice of what they were wearing, and he got really good at predicting trends. One other thing he noticed was an influx of luxury items being shipped to the colonies for the rich and famous people who lived in New York City. So he hatched a plan to take his uncle's musical instruments and travel to New York and America and sell them. Then he convinced his brother George to join him on this transatlantic trade. And with a small loan from George, in November 1783, John Jacob Astor left London on a ship called the North Carolina, with barely $25 in his pocket and some beautiful wooden flutes packed amidst his shabby clothes in a borrowed trunk. We don't really know what happened during that five-month voyage. Some accounts say that the terrible storms threatened to swamp the North Carolina more than once. And some accounts say that Astor made friends with an old fur trapper who filled his young mind with stories of the fur trade in Canada. We'll address those accounts in a bit. The next time that we hear from Astor himself, he is arriving at the port of Baltimore in March of 1784 during an ice storm. The port was blocked by a massive ice flow, and the passengers had to spend almost two months on board waiting for the thaw. Some of the passengers decided to take their chance, and they dropped over the side of the ship to skate and slide their way to shore. But John wasn't that daring. He apparently stood at the rail, watching as people tried to maneuver onto the edge of the ice. When the first of them broke through the thinner part in the ice and had to be rescued, he said, Nope, I'll just wait right here. As the spring thaw crept onto the land, Astor left Maryland, headed for New York City, where his big brother Henry was working in the butcher business. John Jacob sold out of his musical instruments almost immediately, and he sent word back to his brother George to send more flutes. But now John had a problem. He's out of flutes, his $25 was dwindling fast, and now he had to find work to cover his living expenses. Henry helped him get a job as a delivery boy for a German-American baker named George Dietrich. Astor would deliver bread and cake orders from the bakery to the wealthy people of New York, all the while creating the beginnings of his own business network. He rented a small room in Manhattan from a woman named Sarah Cox Todd, and he instantly fell in love with her daughter, also named Sarah Cox Todd. Shortly after their courtship began, though, John realized that his girlfriend was a shrewd businesswoman in her own right. Word soon traveled through her extensive web of connections that the American fur trader Robert Brown was looking for help. So our man John applied. During the summer of 1784, Brown hired Astor to assist with his business. And John spent the next several months learning how to buy and sell furs and how to scrape and tan the raw pelts. Not only did he learn techniques to make furs softer and more pliable, but he quickly mastered the accounting aspect of the business. Robert Brown was very happy with what John Jacob Astor was producing. A year later, in 1785, John married Sarah Cox Todd, the younger, and he received a $300 dowry. That isn't a huge amount of money for a dowry in these days, maybe around 7000 in today's money, but John was well-practiced in how to do great things with less. 
So he goes into partnership with a Brooklyn businessman named Cornelius Heaney. And using Heaney's investment and Sarah's dowry, he bought a little place in the corner of Queen Street in Manhattan. And he established a little mom-and-pop shop trading in and repairing instruments. With the profits he made in the first year, he bought Heaney out. He and Sarah then began selling a wider variety of instruments and began to introduce other imported English luxury goods, as well as buying the local furs from Native Americans and preparing them himself. And the Astor's little business did fairly well for the next three years. They lived modestly, and though they still struggled from time to time, John was extremely good at managing money. And then, a brutal polar vortex slammed into the state of New York. The extremely cold winter of 1788-89 proved to be a blessing for the Astor's fur business. Local demand for warm pelts skyrocketed, and the Astor's found themselves running out of stock as soon as they had the furs processed. So when the spring thaw came, John decided to make sure that that didn't happen again. He bought the camping and trapping supplies he would need, kissed his heavily pregnant wife Sarah, and set out on foot for the relatively unsettled northwest corner of the state of New York. And there he trapped and hunted beaver and mink and raccoons. These were the furs that the people had been going crazy over for making coats and gloves and hats. At first, he followed Native American trails on foot, but he quickly realized that he had to lug those bales of fur on his back one at a time. Some of those bundles weighed up to 100 pounds apiece. As soon as he could, he traded one of his personal prized flutes for a canoe, and he began using the waterways to hunt. He slept out under the stars, and he lived off the land, foraging for his food and eating the meat from the animals he collected. He spent his evenings scraping pelts by the fireside. Within a few weeks, he had returned home to his loving wife in Manhattan with the canoe overflowing with pelts. And he was just in time for the birth of his first daughter, Magdalena. Sarah helped him clean and process the pelts into luxurious furs. The profit margin was phenomenal. And that huge profit convinced him that this fur trade business was the way to go. But to keep his overhead low, he knew he needed to do most of the work himself. He also knew that he needed to up his game. So with each new trip into the wilderness, he carried beads and clothing, small toys, and even a few of his uncle's wooden flutes. He discovered he could attract attention by playing his flute as he went and he even gave impromptu concerts for the gathered tribes. He not only built a dependable trade network with them, but also a friendship. Each trip was more and more successful as word spread of the generosity and kindness of the man and the quality of his trade goods, and he was quickly well-respected amongst the tribes. Before long, other merchants are looking at John's rapidly increasing wealth, saying, well, we can do that. And very soon, small-time companies are popping up across the state. New trade routes were being blazed across the wilds of New York, and they're flowing into the neighboring states. And it was good. Sort of. It might have been a boost to the economy in the state of New York, but it put serious pressure on John's business with so much competition sprouting up all over. 
so he upped his game again. First of all, he played on the anti-British sentiment that was being fanned into a wildfire. Secondly, he improved the quality of his furs, making the processing of the pelts a bit more demanding, but allowing him to get a higher price. Remember that this is just after the American Revolution. Everyone hates Britain, and to trade with any Brits north of the Canadian border was a no-no. There were laws against dealing with British people. So Canadian furs were being shipped from Montreal in Canada to London, bounced to somewhere else in Europe, then shipped back to America to be sold in New York. This made them much more expensive, and took up to a year of travel for a pelt to make that circuit. Any furs that could be procured locally were going to be cheaper. But as the small-time fur traders were making their rounds, they found that John Jacob Astor had already developed a stranglehold on the market. And for his part, Astor realized that if he could sell extremely luxurious pelts at a reasonable rate, they would be gobbled up quickly. And that's exactly what happened. When none of the native tribes would deal with these other mom-and-pop companies, those companies eventually caved and sold their furs to Astor at a discounted price. John then reprocessed them into luxury-grade pelts and sold them for twice what he paid. Something else happened during this year that would change the face of America, and you've probably never heard of it. Remember John's big brother Heinrich, the butcher? When he came to the U.S. with the Hessian mercenaries, he had changed his name to Henry Astor. And it was in 1788 that Henry made that name actually mean something. He bought an English thoroughbred named Messenger from a man named Sir Thomas Banger in England. Banger shipped Messenger to the States, and Henry Astor charged $40 a pop as a stud fee which was equivalent to thousands of dollars today. Messenger is credited as being the founding sire of all standard-bred horses in our country, including Tennessee walking horses, American saddlebreds, and even modern American racehorses today. And Messenger made Henry Astor a very rich man. Now, the following year, 1789, two events would impact Astor's life. The first was naturalization. Five years after his arrival in Baltimore, John Jacob Astor stood before a judge, hand-raised, and recited the oath of citizenship in flawless English. The other event to change his life was his acceptance into the Freemasons. John and Sarah had been married two years at this point, but when they first got married, John had joined an organization called the German Society of New York. And it was there he first heard about this highly secretive society called the Freemasons. John believed access to this elite society would cultivate new networks for his business, and it would give him new elbows to rub to get into the social elite and political circles. And in 1789, after two years of pressing his face against the window, he was finally accepted as a member of Holland Lodge number eight, and he now found himself connected with some seriously influential people, like DeWitt Clinton, future New York City mayor and later governor. In fact, Astor worked his way up through the ranks over the next decade, 
rubbing elbows with the socially elite, and eventually becoming a senior warden of the lodge, and later the master. And while he was expanding his social standings, he was also diversifying his investments. Land in Lower Manhattan was generally considered a good buy. There was a high demand with a constant influx of immigrants looking to set up new homes and businesses. Being the ever-cautious investor, John wasn't sure this was such a good idea. He preferred to watch others first, letting them make the first move and seeing what mistakes they made, and then avoiding those mistakes. He gathered data and opinions, and he tracked the trends, and then he would act, albeit slowly. He'd been watching the land get gobbled up by farmsteads and businesses. He just wasn't sure it was going to pay off for him. But finally, his brothers persuaded him to go for it. So John bought a corner lot on Elizabeth Street in 1789. He moved his trading business onto the first floor, and his family lived over the shop. Later that year, things had gone so well that he bought the lot next door. And a year after that, he bought the lot on the other side. His home may have been rather modest and plain-looking, but don't let that deceive you. He was becoming quite wealthy. Over the next decade, John would buy up more and more property. He figured out that he could buy one of the multi-acre farmsteads and split it into several properties, selling each portion off for far more than he paid for the whole shebang. It's called subdividing, and real estate enthusiasts still do it today to turn massive profits. Something else happened to the Astors in 1790. Sarah gave birth once more, this time to a little girl named Sarah Todd Astor. Sadly, the child was stillborn, and their hearts were broken. But before long, Sarah was pregnant again. And in 1791, his first son was born, John Jacob Astor III. During the year of 1791, John's brother Henry introduced the growing family to a congregation of the German Reformed Church of New York. Soon, John and Sarah had become members, and John even signed on as the church's treasurer. This increased that social network and began all kinds of new relationships with the well-established in the upper-class society. And the following year, in 1792, Sarah gave birth to another child, a little boy named William Backhouse. Their joy was soon overshadowed by the realization that something wasn't quite right with baby John, now a year old. He was a sickly baby, and he wasn't quite where he was supposed to be developmentally. Little did they realize that the child would suffer a lifetime of mental ailments and disabilities. So, the Revolutionary War is now over, and in 1794, the Jay Treaty opened commerce between the United States and the British citizens in Canada. John Astor took advantage of that newly loosened restriction by buying furs in bulk from the Northwest Company in Montreal. He also expanded his own efforts in fur-taking with newly improved access to the territory around the Great Lakes. Only this time, he sent trappers that he hired to go schlep around the wilderness while he stayed warm and dry in New York and ran the company. And again, with the Jay Treaty opening commerce, small trading companies began popping up everywhere, and they, this increased the pressure on the Astors. But John had already established those 
flute music-filled networks by hauling himself all over the Great Lakes for the last several years. And that meant he had years of experience over the competition and secure trade partners, many of whom actually refused to deal with anyone else. But even still, the increase in minor fur companies in the region did begin to cramp his style a bit. So he looked out at the bigger picture and decided he was going to up his game once more. The first American vessel had sailed to the Canton markets in China in 1784, a full 10 years earlier, and John Jacob Astor had been watching this trade develop over those 10 years, anticipating that some of that silk and tea and spices would be showing up in higher-end shops and they would become a highly demanded product. This is where his network came into play. Besides his congregation network, and his Freemasons network, and his German community network, and his rich friends in business network, and the New York elites network, he had another far-reaching web at his disposal, his wife's connections. Her dowry of $300 might have seemed paltry, but her family connections brought him a wealth of knowledge and information. Her nephew, John Wetton, was an active-duty naval officer who rubbed elbows with all the elite shipowners. In fact, John and Sarah worked very closely with him and later gave him command of a fleet of their merchant ships. Her brother, Adam, was a sea captain with connections to many of the shipping companies that were delivering cargo in and out of New York Harbor. He also knew who had ships for sale. Sarah's stepsister was a genius when it came to establishing marketing networks, and she provided the Astors with all kinds of valuable introductions and advice. And with all that information at his back, in early 1794, John Jacob Astor purchased his first merchant ship. He also upgraded his living situation, buying a large building on Broadway, smack in the heart of Manhattan, where all the rich and famous people lived. Ten years after this nondescript arrival in New York City as an uneducated, poor, shabby butcher's boy, John Jacob Astor was now considered one of the affluent residents of New York City. Part of it was because of his business savvy. He lived modestly and he worked like a dog. And part of it was who his friends were. He understood the wisdom of keeping the right people in his circle. It just so happened that many of those people in his circle were the biggest names in the Canadian fur trade. See, back in the early 1790s, Astor had been buying furs in bulk from the Northwest Company, and he accompanied his friends at the Northwest Company to two voyages in China, and he could see the benefits of establishing the trade routes to the markets in Asia. And to keep companies like Northwest Company from sneaking in and stealing their business... British commercial law forbade anyone except the East India Company from conducting commerce with China. So any British ships found in Chinese ports not belonging to the East India Company would be either confiscated or sunk. So Astor volunteered his American ships that the British had no control over. And both trips were hugely profitable for both Astor and the Norwesters. And Astor saw great benefits in working with the Northwest Company on a full-time basis. In fact, he offered to become the major Northwest Company agent, delivering all furs destined for China. Owner Alexander Mackenzie 
who wanted to keep the business under Northwest control, was like, uh, no. And Astor said, fine. So he bought another ship, and another, and another, and he didn't let the Northwest Company use any of them anymore. By 1795, Astor had purchased a dozen ships, and his thriving import-export business took off like a rocket. His ships were sailing all over the world. India, Europe, Asia, Russia, you name it. Now a full-fledged international merchandising rock star, Astor began to fund trading voyages to China, along with several partners who were friends of his. Some of those partners were men from the Northwest Company who thought Alexander Mackenzie had been a bit too hasty in brushing Astor off. In the year 1800, at the age of 37 years old, Astor was worth $250,000, which is roughly equivalent to around $6 million today. And he was well on his way to becoming the top international tradesman. And then he stepped his game up a little bit farther. Let me explain what he did. Let's say you're a trapper in the wilderness working a beaver line. Let's say I buy a beaver pelt from you for $5. I ship it to China and tell them it costs $10. And I trade it for $10 worth of tea. Since the young American government was fairly broke, they levied a tariff on imported tea, almost 100% in some cases. So that $10 box of tea is now worth 20 Astor would then sell it in his shop for 40 and even after paying his $10 tax, he still made $25 profit on a $5 beaver pelt. The average ship can hold $150,000 worth of furs, which is around 30,000 beaver pelts. So one trip could potentially net him a profit of $750,000. And that's in 1800s money. That's not in today's money. That's $1,800,750,000 per trip in 1800. And he had a dozen ships making that trip. If all the ships made just one trip a year, that's $9 million a year, in the year 1800. And Astor's fleet made multiple trips, each usually getting three or four in before the bad weather forced them to quit. But there's a caveat to all this. If I send 12 ships from here to China, each hauling a potential of a million dollars of profit, and a storm sends all of my ships to the bottom of the deep blue sea, not only is my profit zilch, but I'm out of business. It was simply that risky. On the other side of that, if I send 12 ships packed to the brim with furs and I flood the market in China, both the price and the profit margin drops like a rock because everybody will have all the furs they need and nobody will want to buy anymore. So Astor watched his business dealings like a hawk and he manipulated the flow of goods to make the most out of his profits. This guy very literally had less than two years of schooling, yet he understood concepts that would make even modern economists nauseous. Astor was simply that brilliant. It wasn't just tea that he was trading for, either. His ships returned with sandalwood and spices and all sorts of exotic products that the New York rich and famous gobbled up with enthusiasm. Okay, dear listeners, this is the point where I'm going to say something hugely unpopular, but I don't care. History is often dark, 
and dirty, and glossing over it doesn't do anyone any good. So here's the truth. Not only did he make a huge fortune on the furs, and the tea, and the sandalwood, he got ridiculously rich on the illicit drug trade. And before anyone melts down over that statement, let me explain. The trading of opium, at least in this point in history, was not considered illegal in America. Remember that this is the period in time where opium was one of the f just a few painkillers available to people. And it was an active ingredient in many, many medicines, even those for children. However, China had a huge opium problem. And nearly half of the Chinese population were addicted. So China banned the import of opium. And that is what made it illegal. Astor didn't care that it was banned. He traded it anyway. And many businessmen in this day traded in opium like others traded in furs or spices. Astor also wasn't the only one doing this. In fact, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uncle was supposedly a huge opium trader. So let's not judge Astor too harshly. Remember that times were different, and what people considered proper then was far different than what we today would consider to be good or bad. So Astor started trading with India for huge quantities of opium to take to China, where he promptly undercut the Brits by just enough to make his product fly off the shelves, so to speak. And he made a fortune. Now, in 1801, his wife Sarah had just delivered her seventh child, a very sickly little girl who, over the next few years, was failing to thrive. So Sarah convinced him to take a piece of their vast land holdings and build a summer home. Away from the hustle and bustle and the thick air of the city, he looked around the island of Manhattan at all his properties, trying to decide where to build his country home. But, you know, this man doesn't do anything quickly. And then, three years later, in 1804, an opportunity came across his doorstep. Vice President Aaron Burr had just killed the now-famous-on-Broadway Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Burr then went back to Washington, D.C. to finish out his term under the protection of immunity from prosecution. But he was completely disgraced in the eyes of the nation, and even more so in the eyes of his neighboring New Yorkers. And Byrd didn't help himself any when he next conspired with an army commander named Wilkinson to seize the territory of the Louisiana Purchase and set up his own kingdom, with himself in charge, of course. Burr went to the Brits, and he asked for their support, and they laughed him off. Then Burr screwed up royally when he attempted to take over the port of New Orleans, and the U.S. government was like, okay, we're done with your antics. So the two men were hauled in for questioning, and Wilkinson decided to save his own skin, and he completely turned on Burr, ratting him out for treason. So Burr's properties and assets were seized and sold off, and one of those properties was a quaint 70-acre homestead overlooking the East River in Manhattan. And our man John Jacob Astor scarfed that right up, along with other bargain land deals that came out of Burr's being outcast, what Astor created was a mansion he called Hellgate, and he found he quite enjoyed sitting on his porch, watching his cargo ships come and go while he debated his next investment. Now remember that Astor was rather cautious in his business ventures. 
he would spend a lot of time watching and waiting to see how something panned out before he jumped in. He would rather other people make the mistakes that often accompanied risky endeavors. And those mistakes of others were one of the main things that influenced his decisions. But so did his friends. One likely influencer was Astor's longtime friend, Alexander Henry the Elder. Henry was a merchant in Quebec who had been one of the founders of the Northwest Company. He was also a founding member of the Beaver Club. For anyone not familiar with the Beaver Club, here's a quick explanation. It was sort of a gentleman's club, and its members were primarily all the big dogs in the fur trade. Many of them were men from the Northwest Company, and many of them were Scots. And the one thing Scots are known for, besides their hospitality, is their love of music and alcohol. So some stories depict the Beaver Club as this raucous frat house atmosphere, while others portray a very refined dinner setting. Most meetings were held in Beaver Hall, which is what they called the formal dining room of fur trader Joseph Frobisher, another of the founding members. At first, membership was very exclusive. Not just anyone could get in. You had to be a top dog somewhere in the fur trade. And Astor was certainly that. So on the invitation of his friend Alexander Henry, Astor attended his first Beaver Club dinner in the early 1800s. Here he would have had conversations with Henry, and probably others like Alexander Mackenzie and Peter Pond, about the huge potential in the fur trade west of the Rocky Mountains. It's likely that these discussions between Astor and his colleagues helped shape Astor's concept of how to expand his business to the West Coast. But John Jacob Astor wasn't one to jump into things without a plan. So he ordered the construction of his newest trading vessel, the Beaver, in 1803. And over the next few years, Astor perfected his international trading practices. And for four years, it was business as usual. Then something happened that would reshape international trade. During the Napoleonic Wars, between roughly 1803 and 1815-ish, both the French and the Brits were taking turns blocking American ports to keep others out and to interrupt trading with these ungrateful, rebellious American nation that we are. The Brits knew the French Revolution was going on, and they knew that we were likely to get involved as a way of thanking the French for saving our butts during the American Revolution. They were also still a little salty that us ungrateful peasants revolted in the first place. So they started harassing our ships. They also started kidnapping American sailors off those ships and forcing them into service in the English Navy. And the French were still salty that we ghosted them after our revolution victory. So they started harassing our ships. And generally, we were annoyed at all the harassment, but our trading vessels could still get around. But then... On June 22, 1807, an American frigate named the USS Chesapeake was chased and then attacked by a British ship named the HMS Leopard. The Brits had been looking for English Navy deserters that were taking refuge in Norfolk, Virginia. They probably wouldn't have found any, except that one of the deserters, a brainiac named Jenkin Ratford, saw some British officers on the street in Norfolk, so he scurried on board the Chesapeake with the crew, then shouted insults down at the search party. Kind of a, you can't get me, na 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 except that they could. 
and they did it by chasing the Chesapeake into open water, pulling up broadside, and blowing holes in the ship until it surrendered. The Brits then boarded the American ship, collected Ratford and three of his buddies, and sent the Chesapeake limping home. At which point, the Chesapeake's captain, one James Barron, was promptly court-martialed and relieved of duty. Well, as you can imagine, the American populace felt violated. They rose up in protest and demanded that the government defend their honor. How dare those mangy Brits act like us Americans don't have inalienable rights? You can't just come blowing holes in our navy and then sail off like it's no big deal. The American people were demanding war. President Thomas Jefferson wrote, Never since the Battle of Lexington have I seen this country in such a state of exasperation as at present. And even that did not produce such unanimity. So despite this huge demand for the, taking the country to the brink of war, Thomas Jefferson cooled things down by taking the diplomatic approach. He enacted the Embargo Act of 1807. If you don't know, an embargo is a type of blockade, in this case, on anything imported from another country, which includes the Brits and France. The primary reason for taking the diplomatic high road is because Jefferson knew the United States military was not ready for a big fight. We were far weaker than the Brits, and we certainly couldn't go ask the French for help after we blew them off during their revolution. On top of this, there was a huge lack of military resources in 1807. In fact, tariffs were established to protect homegrown companies that produced things like gunpowder, or other things that the military desperately needed. Big contracts started being handed out to little mom-and-pop companies that produced such products. And that, dear listeners, would secure the future of one such homegrown company in Wilmington, Delaware. It was a company started a few years earlier, and they produced gunpowder. It was started by a French immigrant named DuPont. So, while the embargo clobbered any merchants in America who got their products from overseas, it really didn't have the desired effect on the Brits in France. It's a big world. If we don't want to trade, there's always someone else who will. In fact, it actually backfired completely. We said, we're not going to trade with you Brits and French. And they said, fine, we're not going to trade with you either. Then later, when we realized that we had shot ourselves in the foot, the government lifted the embargo and said, okay, we'll trade with whoever agrees to trade with us first. But the other one of you won't get anything. And they both laughed and said, nah, you know, we're good. And as things got worse and worse, we took this a step further and said, okay, we'll trade with you, but your warships aren't allowed in our ports. And they both snickered. And then when we get to that state of desperacy, we get to the point where we say, will someone please trade with us? And the French eventually caved and led us back onto the economic playground. And while the embargo was a dismal failure, it did put a stopper in John Jacob Astor's plans for the time being. So, being John Jacob Astor, he decided it was time to launch his greatest creation of all, the American Fur Company. He tried to lobby for support amongst his numerous networks, and the concept was generally applauded, but he was getting frustrated at the lack of substantial support. 
So he wrote a letter to the President of the United States, asking for his blessing. And President Thomas Jefferson was impressed. The American Fur Company was officially established in New York State on April 6, 1808. For anyone who lost track of that math, he began selling furs in New York City in 1785. That's 23 years before the American Fur Company was born. I told you he was cautious. He began tanning furs locally, and using his already expansive network of trading partners, he built an incredible fur processing network with private trappers and Native Americans, business owners, and small mom-and-pop fur traders as far north as Nova Scotia, all the way down the coast to the Carolinas. Then he expanded west to the Great Lakes and into the Plains, and even into the Columbia River Basin. He took a trip that autumn to Montreal to purchase the Mishillimackinac Company from the Canadians. And they said, no, we're not selling. But in less than a year, his American Fur Company became the largest fur trading company in North America. Not just the U.S., but in all of North America in less than a year. Now, on top of that income, he still had the New York real estate thing going on, and the international empire of opium, furs, teas, and silks going on. That was back in full swing because the government realized how worthless the Embargo Act was and they had repealed it. And our man Astor looked once more to the west coast of the continent and went, yeah, now it's time. In fact, in that letter to President Jefferson, Astor laid out his vision of a chain of interconnected trading posts stretching across the country from the Columbia River in Oregon to the Great Lakes. He met with President Jefferson in 1808, where he laid out his concept of relaying furs through that chain of trading posts. The furs would then be sent to the coast of Oregon, where they would be loaded onto ships and transported to China to be sold for unbelievable profits. Amazing new products like porcelain would be purchased there to sell to the American market, as well as all over the world, including London, India, and even in Russia. Not only did the American Fur Company give those nasty Brit fur companies a run for their money, but over the next years, faltering and failing mom-and-pop fur companies would sell their assets to him at reasonable prices, making everyone richer in the process. On September 17, 1808, John Jacob Astor once more walked through the doors of the Beaver Club meeting, this time being held in the ballroom of the now-famous Montreal Hotel. He had a whole lot to be proud of that night. And we know that 18 other fur trade magnates and their guests were seated around the table with him because we actually have the bill from the dinner. Check this out. The... Dinner tab included 32 dinners, 7 suppers, 29 bottles of Madeira, 19 bottles of port, 14 bottles of porter, 12 quarts of ale, an unknown quantity of brandy and gin, cigars, pipes, and tobacco, and if you include the surcharge for the three wine glasses that the rowdy men broke, that total of that bill was 28 pounds sterling. That is one heck of a party. Now, 
The territory of the American Northwest was rich in resources and largely untamed. The Russian-American Fur Company had been working in this area for years, but they had serious challenges in getting supplies, so their company was floundering. But Astor was a business genius. A mutually beneficial agreement with the Russian-American Company was created, in which the Russian trading posts would receive a regular supply of provisions, in turn, for the furs they collected. This would help prevent the Northwest Company from gaining any presence along the Pacific coast. And to do this, Astor needed to establish a fort from which his trading ships could sail north into Russian America with supplies, and southwest to trade off the collected furs in China. The first phase of this grand plan was to incorporate a subsidiary company which he named the Pacific Fur Company. Astor and some of his former partners from the Northwest Company met in New York on the 23rd of June, 1810, and they signed the Pacific Fur Company's provisional agreement. Those partners included famous Northwest Company trappers like Donald McKenzie, uh, Robert McClellan, Alexander McKay, Duncan McDougall, David Stewart, and Robert Stewart. Astor then sent two teams of employees west, one by sea carrying supplies, and one by land to create and staff the trading posts and to get those furs rolling in. Come on, boys. Chop, chop. As it turns out, both trips were absolutely horrible. Astor bought a ship named the Tonkin for $38,000. It had already successfully completed two journeys to the Pacific, so it was a good bet. The ship left New York Harbor September 8th of 1810 with about half of those previously named Scottish partners on board, and 30 other crewmen, many of whom were French-Canadian trappers. The captain was a man named Jonathan Thorne. He was said to be a surly naval commander who had a great dislike for Scots, and you guessed it, French-Canadians. In fact, when the Canadian clerks were documenting the voyages in their ledgers, Thorne was sure they were spies. He apparently treated everyone equally poorly, though. On December 4th, the Tonkins sought shelter at the shore of Port Egmont in the Falkland Islands. Most of the crew had gone on shore, and Captain Thorne threatened to take off before the men came back on board. Scottish trader Robert Stewart apparently stood with his pistol to the captain's head, threatening to send him to oblivion if any of the crew so much as thought about moving a single rope. The captain apparently made things even more difficult by constantly interjecting himself into their conversations, wanting to know what they were talking about. In fact, things had gotten so bad that the Canadians began communicating with each other in French, while the Scots resorted to Scots Gaelic just to keep the captain in the dark. On December 25th, the Tonkins sailed into the Pacific Ocean, and they made a beeline for the Kingdom of Hawaii. They needed supplies and repairs. But by now, tensions were so high that the captain feared the crew would abandon ship to live out their lives in this tropical paradise, so he forced everyone to stay on board. The Scottish partners weren't so sure they didn't have the same problem, so they forced their own crew to stay put. King Kamehameha of Hawaii was kind enough to send the supplies out, and their goods were soon restocked. 24 native Hawaiians were also hired to boost their ranks, and then the Tonkin headed north for the mouth of the Columbian River. 
I just want to take a second here to point out that Hawaii in that day was known as the Sandwich Isles, and a vast number of native Hawaiians were employed by French and English fur companies as voyagers. Not only were these guys well-built and strong, but they could do one thing that most of the white voyagers could not do. They could swim. So the Tonkin sailed north towards the delta of the Columbia River, arriving in March of 1811 during a terribly dangerous storm. And this is where dear Captain Thorne nearly earned himself a second Scottish smackdown. You see, there was a treacherous sandbar in the way that would force the Tonkin to run aground. On top of that, the waters of the Columbia River rushed into the undulating waves of the sea, creating something like a washing machine effect in high water. This is a dangerous area on a good day. And with this storm crashing down all around them, visibility was almost nothing. So Captain Thorne ordered two boats to be dispatched to scout out a safe path. Only there was this raging tempest going on, and it was most definitely not safe to be on the water in a small boat. Despite the protests of the partners, Thorne persisted, and both boats flipped over, tossing eight men into the turbulent waters to their death. It would be several days before the Tonkin could safely cross the bar, and the men could finally disembark. I can only imagine how tense those days must have been, and I'm betting Captain Thorne slept with one eye open. Once the men made landfall, they immediately began reconnoitering the area. They met the locals, a band of Chinook natives, who helped them determine the best building site for Fort Astoria. At this time, in the unspoiled Oregon wilderness, the trees were massive, and they were coated in a hard resin. One account states that the trees were so large and hard to chop that it took two full days of axe swinging to fell one tree. Axes were dulling with just a few whacks. And while the men were busting their backs felling trees and hauling stones, good old Captain Thorne was fussing about wanting to continue his travels north along the coast to trade. That was what John Jacob Astor had instructed him to do, go north and trade. And you can't tell me there wasn't one guy on that building crew that would not have been very relieved to have been rid of this man. So 65 days later, 65 days of whining later, the Tonkin departed, taking 23 of the crew members with it. The plan was that the Tonkin would sail north to Vancouver Island, trade with the natives, then come back to Fort Astor and prepare for its return voyage to New York for more supplies. But what actually happened is that after a band of Tlaoquiet Indians and their Quino interpreter boarded the Tonkin to trade, Captain Thorne got his knickers in a bunch over some perceived slight, and he slapped one of the leading nobles in the face with a pelt. The result was that a massive fight broke out. Most of the natives and crewmen were killed, and the Tonkin was put to the torch. As you can imagine, it will be several weeks until this news gets back to Fort Astoria and almost a year before it reaches back to John Astor in New York. And during that time, Fort Astoria is cut off from the world. No supplies coming in, no news going out. Now, 
understanding that their supply line has just been cut off. The men who were actually building Fort Astoria had a whole nother set of problems. None of the men in the party were loggers. Some of them had never even used an axe before this point. That didn't stop them from giving it the good old Buckskinner's effort. So they grouped themselves into teams of four, and each team worked on a platform eight feet off the ground to cut these trees. So you've got four men swinging axes eight feet off the ground at a rock-hard tree, all standing right next to each other. What could possibly go wrong? As you can imagine, medical issues and injuries quickly became a problem. And since not one of these men was medically educated, there were periods during the first few months where a full half of the crew was laid up with some kind of condition. What treatments they could muster up were just basic, and injuries do not heal well in those conditions. This was a brutal few months for these men. Meanwhile, the Overland Astorians, as they were called, had been working their way west, picking up new recruits as they went. The plan was to camp at the mouth of the Nottoway River in a pleasant spot suggested to them by their friend Meriwether Lewis. They would then proceed up the Missouri River into the Columbia River Valley and arrive at Fort Astoria by spring of 1811. Sixty-five people left South Dakota, including Donald McKenzie, Robert McClellan, and several other very experienced trappers. The man in charge was a guy named Wilson Price Hunt, a man specifically chosen by Astor because of his prowess in business. Unfortunately, this man knew absolutely nothing about surviving in the wilderness. In fact, if it wasn't for the experience of the guides and the trapping partners that accompanied the group, with some of those having been trained by the famous Andrew Henry, co-founder of Ashley's Hundred, the whole expedition might have been lost. As it was, the company launched their canoes up the Snake River in late October. They soon had one man drown and lost the majority of their supplies when several of their boats sunk to the bottom of the turbulent river. With winter coming on quickly, the men abandoned the river course in Idaho, and they continued on foot. When they got to the edge of starvation, they split into small groups, each group heading in the general direction of the meeting point at Fort Astoria in Oregon, 2,000 miles away. And the trials that those men suffered on the way is enough to fill a whole episode for this podcast. So we'll sum it up as this. Partly because Hunt was completely clueless about the wilderness, and partly because the winter was exceptionally brutal. Each of the groups endured that winter of 1811 with the help of local natives, obstinate mountain man persistence, and no shortage of dumb luck. And finally, in January of 1812, the first group arrived at Astoria, followed by small groups of stragglers over the next several months. The last of the group staggered into Fort Astoria in the fall of that year, a full 12 months after having left the others at the Snake River. Sixty men lost their lives in total in the creation of Fort Astoria. And with its completion in 1812, Fort Astoria became the first permanent West Coast community in the United States. 
And by the middle of 1812, despite all of the hardships and all of the grief, trading had started in earnest. Astor had envisioned exploiting the vast salmon populations in the area, but the trading started too late in the year to capitalize on that. Astor envisioned the ridiculous variety of supple white furs coming out of Russian America, but the Tonkin was now a pile of ashes on the shores of Vancouver Island. Astor even made plans to open new trading hubs in the Philippines and the Sandwich Isles and even into the Korean Peninsula. It was a rocky start, but at least his vision was starting to bear fruit. But you know what else started in 1812? Yeah, a major war. Britain quickly took to harassing our coastlines, confiscating trade ships, and generally being a pain in the side. They set up blockades of any port they could get into. Farmers could no longer export produce. Merchants couldn't import any goods. And the government was losing tons of money in import tariffs on international products. But because of the lessons learned after that failed Embargo Act of 1807, we weren't nearly as ill-prepared as we once were. On the east coast of America... There were well-established ports now that housed military vessels that could be used to dissuade the British attacks. So on the East Coast, we could fight back. But Fort Astoria stood alone on the faraway western coast, and no one could come to her aid. Marauding English vessels plagued the fort constantly, and the Russians, who saw a huge opportunity in this conflict, decided that the land belonged to them instead. With strife on both sides, Astor decided to cut his losses, and he eventually sold Fort Astoria to the Northwest Company for a pittance. The fort was renamed Fort George, and the Union Jack flag was raised overhead October 23, 1813. And now, the Astorians had to walk back to New York. The trek back was an equally miserable time of it. Their horses were stolen more than once, they were constantly harassed by hostile natives, and not too far into the walk back, one man went absolutely mad, meaning that a group of them had to haul him back, bound and gagged, to Fort Astoria, and then catch up with the groups before they could all go back. But this group of men discovered what would become the South Pass of the Oregon Trail, for the first time, and that alone would be instrumental in the growth of our nation. But Fort Astoria was gone. Astor's dream of creating a global merchandising network based out of the western coast of the country slipped from his fingers and dropped right into the laps of the Northwest Company. And in 1821, when Hudson's Bay Company enveloped the Northwest Company in a forced merger, Astor's stranglehold on the fur trade in the Missouri River Basin slipped away as well. But that didn't hamper Astor's vision. It helped that his luck changed when the U.S. government began to limit the amount of business that foreign companies, like those of France and Britain, could conduct. As more and more foreign fur trappers were forced out, the American Fur Company took over those abandoned territories until it had bought out all the small companies or smothered the larger ones, like the Rocky Mountain Fur Company. 
Plus, back in 1811, Astor had also created another company named the Southwest Company, again with many of his partners from the Northwest Company. And that company had moved into the areas of the Midwest and the Southwest, dealing in deer hides and buffalo robes and beaver pelts, plus unique Southwestern pelts that the trappers brought in. That same government mandate that limited foreign companies essentially cleared out all the competition. And by 1830, almost the entire market belonged to Astor. On an unrelated side note, one other achievement of this great man was in 1816. The nation was heavily in debt after the War of 1812 because, well, wars are expensive, and the government had been without a national bank for a few years. So a group of businessmen decided to help boost the economy by installing a national bank. Astor was one of the six men on the committee to reestablish that bank, and they created a 21-year charter for it to operate with. The National Bank would continue to be a huge success until 1832, when President Andrew Jackson vetoed renewing the charter, because apparently Andrew Jackson did not like banks. Now, all this time, we've discussed how observant John Jacob Astor was in the world of business, and how he predicted patterns and rises and falls in fashion and buying trends. By the time the sun rose on 1834... He knew what was coming. The fur trade was dying off. Beaver populations were dwindling if they existed at all. And new fashion trends were changing the face of the international markets. And as if all of that were not enough nails in the coffin, in 1833 and 34, Hudson's Bay Company launched its campaign to destroy the American fur companies by showing up at the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous and underselling the Americans in a big way, essentially ruining the American fur trade. Astor withdrew from the company, selling off the various divisions to trappers who had been lifelong partners and friends. And while this split-up of the company would mean that those people were now competing against each other, the Northern Division would retain the name American Fur Company but things would never be the same. Astor had dodged that economic bullet getting out when he did, but he also made it work to his advantage. He had long ago predicted the rise of another type of material and had been importing it in great quantities on his trade vessels. It would be the very same material that ultimately spelled the demise of the fur trade, silk. So what did John Jacob Astor do with his vast fortunes? He started looking into new investment opportunities in real estate. He had already invested hundreds of thousands of dollars, and he held the deeds to vast tracts of land in Manhattan. But now he started to aggressively buy and develop great swathes of the city, confident that the city of Manhattan would someday become one of the greatest in America. Over the past decade, he had purchased all of the lots surrounding his former home. And now, he leveled it all to the ground. In their place, he built a grand hotel, called the Astor House. It was five stories, containing 309 of the most luxurious guest rooms on earth, and a sixth story above for the servants' quarters. 
This was just massive for structures in this day. And its opulence made it a tourist magnet for people all over the world. This was the place that the rich and famous stayed. From Abraham Lincoln to Albert Einstein, Charlie Chaplin to royals from all over the planet. They, there were sumptuous curtains and fabrics and a basin in each room. Each of the six floors had communal bathing and toilet facilities with hot water pumped in by steam engines. Gas lighting was all throughout the hotel, with the gas being produced at a plant owned by Astor. In the courtyard, there were gorgeous trees all around and decorative glass and stately cast iron fixtures. Throughout the hotel, there were dining rooms, bars, and even room service, where guests could order from a menu of 30 different meat and fish dinners. Of course, this was still the 1830s, so women had their own dining rooms separated from the men, and a proper lady must be accompanied into the public sphere by a proper gentleman. And even into the 1850s, that's how eating out worked. When most hotels and restaurants finally caved mid-1850s and allowed men and women to dine together, the Astor House Hotel did not. They wanted to maintain that air of aristocracy, and it worked. It also prevented prostitutes from plying their trade in the hotel. Astor provided a stately carriage that picked guests up at the hotel and delivered them to the Madison Square train station, and then picked up new arrivals and took them back to the hotel. The Astor House became the premier place to stay when visitors came to New York City. From the time they disembarked from the train to the time they got back on it, the Astor House was it. And it made him a bloody fortune. And then, as so often happens, tragedy struck. In 1832, his firstborn daughter, Magdalena, passed away, leaving his 12-year-old grandson, Charles, in need of care. At almost 70, John and Sarah Astor took young Charles in and raised him in the Hellgate Mansion. Two years later, Sarah passed away, leaving John Jacob Astor alone in the sprawling home, save for the company of his grieving grandson. By the early 1840s, he was starting to show his age. And while his mind would remain sharp to his dying day, his body was beginning to break down. His health was actually remarked upon by a dinner guest at the Hellgate Mansion in October of 1844. John Jacob was described as being seated, and I quote, at the dinner table with his head down upon his breast, saying very little, and in a voice almost unintelligible, the saliva dropping from his mouth and a servant behind him to guide the victuals which he was eating and to watch him as an infant is watched. His mind is good, his observation acute, and he seems to know everything that is going on, but the machinery is all broken up. Four years later, on March 29, 1848, the man who created this incredible vast empire would breathe his last, his body having been worn out completely. He was the first multimillionaire in the nation, the first corporate monopoly in the nation. And at one point, he held control of almost the entire 
fur trade. His name became synonymous with wealth and opulence. His profits were a closely guarded family secret. But in the New York Weekly Tribune article announcing his death, it was estimated that the rents from his two hotels and his theater alone provided him with an annual income of $60,000, which is over $2 million in today's money. And that's just on those three buildings. He owned vast amounts of property in Manhattan that he collected rent on, but he also owned swathes of land all over the country. Add to that his profits of tens of millions of dollars a year over a course of 50 years, I'm not even sure we could fathom what his actual net worth would have been, though some estimated around $575 million in today's money. And this poor kid came from absolutely nothing. But in the end, you can't take it with you. In his will, he divided his vast estate between his children and grandchildren. The bulk of his wealth went to his second son, William Backhouse, with the understanding that William would continue to provide care for his mentally unstable brother, John Jacob III. And while no one is really sure what the total value of Astor's assets are, we do know where some of his philanthropical money went. He bequeathed a huge grant of money to what would someday become the New York Public Library System. He also sent a huge sum of money back to Waldorf, Germany, for the construction of a poorhouse. The future generations of Astor's would become something equivalent to the American royal family, with feuds and rivalries and successes and tragedies. Some of the lineage would be notable for their lavish lifestyles or their playboy ways, while others would themselves become great philanthropists. Probably one of the most noted is his great-grandson, John Jacob Astor IV, who is remembered as being the wealthiest victim when the Titanic struck the iceberg in 1912. There's just one more topic I want to share with you about John Jacob Astor. And I want to be very clear here. I am telling you a story, not stating facts. Remember that five-month-long trip from London to Baltimore? There is a story that one of the people he met on that trip overseas was a German fur trader named John Nicholas Emmerich. Supposedly, the two became fast friends, and John Nicholas took this poor homesick German kid under his wing. He loaned Astor some money, and the two supposedly agreed to go into business together. One version of the story says that Astor signed an agreement on that boat in 1784, stating that he would become partners with Emmerich, taking one-third of the profits and giving two-thirds of the profits to Emmerich. This splitting of profits would be applied to all aspects of Astor's future income. In that same version, Emmerich took that five-month-long journey to teach Astor everything he knew about the fur trade. Another version of the story says that Astor signed the agreement in 1787, which would have been two years after he married Sarah and started his own business. And it was at that point that Emmerich supposedly taught him everything he knew about the fur trade, even though Robert Brown's records clearly show the young Astor in his employ. 
and this partnership was said to be binding until their deaths. Well, Emmerich's death came first in December of 1816. Part of the agreement was that should Emmerich die before Astor, Astor agreed to be the executor of Emmerich's estate for a period of 90 years. The story goes that Emmerich didn't like his two brothers, so to keep them from getting his money, he wanted Astor to ensure that his nephews and nieces received the money and property instead. The story also says that at the time of Emmerich's death, Astor didn't tell anyone about the agreement and simply kept the assets. If that were the case, it would likely have been reflected in his lifestyle immediately, and there would have been no need for him to legally purchase the properties he did, because he would have already owned them. These legends would be passed down from one generation to the next to the next in the Emmerich's family. And if you've ever traced your genealogy, you will find that most families do have one of those crazy stories that you're not sure if it's true, but man, you hope it is. So over the years, this story grew larger and larger with each retelling, with the details becoming muddled and sometimes completely embellished. Like in one version that states Emmerich owned the Astor house, that same one that Astor flattened his old homestead to build. And some of these quote-unquote facts seriously contradict each other. Well, the family members of Emmerich began to connect with each other. One of the descendants spread the word to anyone with the last name Emmerich, writing letters to potential relatives for more than a decade. And in the 1920s, 900-plus of them got together and filed a lawsuit against Astor's estate. The family wanted an accounting of the money that Emmerich possessed that should have been passed on to them, as well as their two-thirds of Astor's wealth. In 1928, one of the descendants miraculously found documents at the bottom of an old trunk that was said to have once belonged to Emmerich, and it's on that piece of parchment that this whole suit was based. There was an additional piece of a document that said, the reason I put this in the chest is because I don't trust Astor. I paraphrase, but you get the idea. All over the country, 1928 newspapers retold the story again and again. Emmerich's wealth was listed in the New York Times articles from 1928 saying he was believed to have possessed 35 acres of New York City, including the land that both Astor's hotels sat on, a million dollars in America, several ships, 4,000 acres in Berks County, PA, 314 acres in Philadelphia, 300 acres in Germantown, PA, 16 blocks of Baltimore, 1,400 acres of anthracite coal mines in PA, and several million dollars back in Germany, not to mention other small acreages that he collected rent on. So you can see why the family really, really wanted this to be true and wanted to get their portion of those proceeds. However, there are tidbits in the story that complicate the situation. We'll start with Emmerich's birth. He was believed to have been born in Germany in 1749. Another genealogy site states that the fur trader was born in Germany in 1779, which would have made him one year old when Astor was sailing across the Atlantic. Then there's his death. In one version, he died at sea on a fur-laden vessel off the coast of Labrador in 1817. His body was committed to the icy deep water. 
in the court version, he died of a stroke in Philadelphia at a friend's house in 1816, and he was buried in the Lutheran Church Cemetery. I personally have tried to find his gravesite and cannot. Of his life, there are no documents save that which the descendants found in the chest. Even the town of Germantown, PA, where he supposedly was the founder of, was not founded by him. The internet gives that credit to a man named Francis Pistorius. In the court hearing, there was said to be no will. In one testimony, the will was found in a court in St. Louis, while in another it was found at Emmerich's grave site in 1902, and they couldn't produce said document because it was then nefariously stolen by a representative of the Astor estate. If you research the man himself, there's a remarkable shortage of documentation. Every account of the man that I could find was one of those free genealogy sites retelling the same story over and over again. So, what did the court say? In 1928, the court threw out the case, saying there were too many inconsistencies, the claimants waited too long to file suit, the documents were unverifiable, there was absolutely no mention of Emmerich or his partnership agreement in any of Astra's records, and using generally skewed genealogy stories from Grandma is not enough to prove your relationship to a historical figure. So the story of John Nicholas Emmerich will remain just that. A really great story. But the legendary man named John Jacob Astor can be given credit for not only shaping what New York City became, but also what the country became. At one point in time, this man controlled 90% of the fur trade and potentially half of the international trade. That's a phenomenal presence in the history of our nation. And with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. The podcast community has grown steadily, and I have to say I never expected such a wonderful response. So thank you, dear listeners, for making this such a success. Please check out the website at fursandfrontiers.com for more topics of the North American fur trade, as well as some awesome resources for you to continue your own research into our nation's history. Have a great weekend, everybody. Keep your powder dry.